Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masechet Shabbat, Kuf Yud, 110. Now, this page 110 is one of the stranger dafim that we have seen, certainly in a good long time, um, which I think is even saying something. Uh, we have here a lot of... Yerdena, you and I, we both felt that this that there's a lot of cloaked language that sounds very explicit, in, tr- in fact, truly very explicit, as you'll hear momentarily, um, but that it also seems to be almost a code. So we're going to talk about exactly what that is and why that might be, um, and come along for the ride. Yordina, it's all yes. yours. Um, I'm going to start with two stories, one of which is very, the Gemara basically says, or Abai is going to sit, volunteer something, where it's clear that it's sort of like, oh, no, this isn't what we're actually talking about. Um, and then we'll read. And I think everyone who's reviewed the DAF already who's listening knows what story we're going to get to. Um, and this is truly one of the days where I'm frustrated with the presses of DAF Yomi, because I really did want to go down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out exactly what was going on here. So I'm really turning to our co-learners that hopefully somebody has encountered this story before and can share with us something on our Facebook page or reach out to one of us. And if we get a really good explanation here, this is one of the times where I may even say like later on, we'll do a little follow-up or something like that. So let's dive in. So the Gemara in the bottom of the last page on Kuftet um, and going into this page on Kufyud is discussing remedies about when you're bitten by a snake. And it gives this remedy of that if you were bitten by the snake, you would take an embryo of a white donkey tear it open and you would place it on the bike. And the top of our daf gives an actual example of the story where there was once an officer um, from Pumpedita uh, who was bit by the snake and they took 13 white, they found the 13 white donkeys there and they tore them all over open and uh, they put them, uh, uh, you know, and it, it has this weird ending here um, that um, there was an, they were all found to be traced these donkeys. And then when they found they found another donkey in the city, but by the time they went to get it, a lion had eaten it. And so now the Gemara goes on, and Abaye has a response to this bizarre story. Amr Luhu Abaye, Abaye said to them, right, the people who told him about this incident, Dilma Chivaye de Rabbanan Tarke, right? Perhaps what it's talking about is that a snake of the rabbis bit this person. So that in other words, it's not literally that this officer in Pumpadita was bit by a snake but rather that he was bitten by the snake of the rabbis. And he goes on to explain, asuta, right? And there's no cure for that. And so now what's he talking about? He quotes a Pasuk in Gohelet, Paragud Pasukhet, chapter uh, 10, verse 8, which says, right? Someone who breaches a fence, uh, meaning what we're talking about here is a geder, a fence that the rabbis, erected. And this sort of makes sense because remember, we're in the middle of talking about medicine right now and the violation of using medicine on Shabbat. And that's a rabbinic decree, right? That's a gedar, right? So somebody who breaches a fence will be bitten by a snake. Um, so that in other words, the, the, the being bit by a snake is a punishment for not listening to a rabbinic decree. And it's not sure that you would necessarily be cured of that. And a person would actually um, die. So what he's trying to say here is that maybe actually this officer, right, because 
died because um, really it was that he was being uh, he was being punished for something. Um, and then they go on and they answer him. Right. Amrule, they say to him, ain't Rabbi. Right. Yes, my teacher. That is what happened. Because when Rab died, OK, Gazar Rab Yitzchak Barbisna, Rab Yitzchak Barbisna made a decree. Deleka deal mitaye asa vigidme leve hilua, that nobody was allowed to bring myrtle and palm branches to a wedding celebration with bells. So, in other words, that for a period of time after Rab died, because he was such a Talmud Chacham, remember, and we talked about those issues about, you know, how the whole public has to mourn when the Talmud Chacham passes away. I believe that was on Kuf Chet, that for a year, nobody was allowed to sort of celebrate or do these types of customs. Uh, when they died. But this officer, this one who got bit by a snake, he went ahead and he brought a myrtle and palm branches to a wedding celebration with bells. And therefore this snake came and he died. So, you know, it's interesting to see that, first of all, um, you know, this story is not as it seemed. It's We're in the middle of a discussion about how to remedy from a snake bite. And they share the story of this officer. And Abai is coming straight away to tell us, no, no, no. The reason why he wasn't cured is not because the cure doesn't work, but because he actually deserved to die. And once he, you know, reminds them why somebody may get bit by a snake, uh, the people listening to the story say, oh, you're right. We remember that this officer particular thing and did not really give Rub the kavod that he deserved. But more importantly, he this Rub, this uh, officer did not listen to the Gazar Rav Yitzchak Barbisna. Bar he didn't listen to the decree that Rav Yitzchak Barbisna made. Um, so it's actually less of a story about the kavod that we have to afford, Talmidei Chachamim, but it's more a story about what happens when you don't listen to, um, when you don't listen to a, um, uh, you know, to a rabbi. Now, I think what's interesting here, and now I'll get to the second story, is it, there's something about what the character of the snake is on these pages. Um, and then we now go in, the Gemara then continues with other remedies for a snake. Um, and then it gets into an interesting situation about a snake, uh, particularly one where a woman encounters a snake. And it says the following. If a woman is seen by a snake, and she doesn't know whether the snake basically wants to be with her is basically what it's saying is the, is the snake thinking specifically about this woman or not she should remove her clothing and throw the clothing in front of the snake and if the snake winds itself basically around this clothing right then we know that the snake is thinking about this woman the elo and if it doesn't you know wind itself around this clothing then the snake is not thinking, doesn't have his mind set on this woman. And so what's the remedy? What should the woman do if she knows that this snake is interested in her? And what we mean by here is that the snake is interested in the woman in a sexual way. That is what the Gemara is saying here. She should basically have relations with her husband in front of the snake. Others say, Right? No, that's not what she should do, because if she does that, the snake's desire will be even more. Right? Rather, she should take out some of her hairs and nails, right? So 
and throw it at the snake and say and say I am menstruous and then presumably the snake will go away the Gemara then if you thought that was weird continues with something even stranger let's say there's a woman who was actually a snake actually entered her okay right so what does she do she parts her legs um, and then she's made to sit on two barrels and they should bring fatty meat, and then they throw the meat on burning coals, and then somebody should bring her a basket of cress, and fragrant wine, and she puts them there, presumably in this area that's underneath where she's sitting, and then they mix the wine and the cress together, and then the woman holds a pair of tongs in her hands. So that when the snake smells this aroma of this, this mixture of the cress and the wine and the smoking meat, right? The snake comes out of her. And then she seizes it with the tongs and then throws it into the fire. And if she does not do it, this snake will return to her. Very, very, very bizarre piece of Gemara. And it was clear to me and Anne when we read this, this is not talking about a snake. Now, presumably, maybe there is a literal interpretation that this was actually a case uh, that the Gemara came across. But I feel like if we really believe that it's something literal, you know, these are one of these cases where it's sort of like, it's such a lack of understanding about women and their bodies. It, it makes women sound so other. Um, and Anne and I spent a little bit of time trying to think about like, Okay, what else could this be talking about? Um, so I'm going to hand it over to Anne to talk a little bit about, you know, some of the ideas that we tossed around about this. Well, I think the first thing to say is, I would say that part of the reason that, right, that we say that we came to this like intuitive understanding, right, that this must have been talking in code, that it's symbolic or something, right? And again, maybe there's a literal understanding that makes this make sense. But part of the reason is that there's so much detail so much detail like it sounds like this is like a real thing that really happens as a as a regular thing that needed to be you know protected against all the time and and that doesn't quite compute right like if you wanted to say that there was once upon a time a really bizarre case then we might accept it but the fact that it's presented as a this is what to do here we're giving you a procedure and it makes it sound like this is the know-how this is the basic thing that you, this is what you're supposed to do in the circumstance it's just too, it's too removed from what we know to be people's experiences, fine. Even at this far remove of centuries to understand what's going on then. So that's one thing. The other thing is that, you know, the moment you see a snake in Shas, and it's not actually talking about snakes, you know, in their animal properties, right? So snakes are the essential symbol, symbol, right? Representative, even, I would say, of enmity, right? Enmity against against humanity and enmity against whoever, whatever person happens to be standing in the room at that time. Okay, so then we did some searching. Now, if you look at the Rishonim, and you can do this easily on Safari, you can do this in several different ways. The fact is that the Rishonim were very helpful if you needed a vocabulary word translated, but they did not, at least in the amount of Rishonim that I was able to see, um, I did not see anybody addressing this in, let's call it a more holistic way. Um, you know, that's going to make heads or tails of 
you know, the whole thing. We wanted an explanation for the whole story and for the whole representation of the snake in this time. So I then turned to Google. And in this case, Google did me the great favor of turning up the following book. It's called, meaning I, I Googled, just to understand how, how this can work if you're doing your own research, Shabbat 110A, Snake. And I found a book called The Talmud's Red Fence, Menstrual Impurity and Difference in Babylonian... Wait, I'm sorry, it's cut off. In Babylonian what? How can that be? One moment. Uh, that's unfair. <laughs> I'm sorry. In Babylonian Judaism and its Sasanian, I'm not sure even if I'm pronouncing that right, Sasanian context. Great. Now, this book was written by my old friend Shai Sekunda. Shai is a professor of Talmud, really, at Bard College. Hang on. I'm going to tell you exactly his title as well. Um no, I'm not. His title is the Jacob Newsner. He holds the Jacob Newsner Chair in Jewish Studies at Bard College. And he directs the Religious Studies program there. And I've known him for a very long time. He also hails originally originally from Boston as well. Um, and we are lucky to know him now. That, that was actually the most important part of you, what? two of us. Who that we know from. him, right? That Let's he's from on. Boston. Yeah. So, so Shai actually wrote his dissertation on exactly this right the roots of the roots that the gemara has in persian culture that's the fancy word of sasanian or sasanian whatever that i don't know how to pronounce but that's the word that it's there are details about the laws of nida and menstruation and family purity that are parallel to persian law in that time zoroastrian culture and so on which makes a good amount of sense when you consider the fact that the Talmud Bavli was, you know, also like came together in a non-Jewish context. And that is the non-Jewish context. So Shai did some really groundbreaking work in terms of tracing these influences and so on. And what he writes about this passage, right, which, again, Google gave it to me on Google Books. Thank you for finding my, my search here, right? But the text from this, his dissertation became a book. And it's a really, really good book, and it's innovative, and it's creative, and if you have any ability to, you know, follow academic writing, this is a book for you. So, um, so what happens? He says, the language here that describes how this woman is supposed to um, push off the attentions or the unwanted attentions of the snake really parallels language that is used elsewhere where a woman would use the, the language as parallel, the unwanted attentions of a non-Jewish prison guard or a non-Jewish, just a non-Jew, right? Gentiles or the prison official is exactly what, how he, he writes about it. So now this passage begins to make sense, meaning if the snake is a stand-in for a human abuser, right? Or, or I don't know, before a, a wannabe abuser, right? Someone who's going to come after a woman who does not want those attentions. Now he understands. Like, so, so say to that man, I have my period now. You don't want to come near me, right? Throw your nails, throw your hair, right? All, all these things, meaning well, throwing nails. Can I cutting. just interrupt, interrupt you for one second? That actually made me think of, you know, the captive woman. I'm not thinking of the Hebrew word right now, but you know. If at the yeah, thank you. The Yifat Torah, right? Where, where a woman is captured by a Jewish soldier 
and she sort of has to like make herself ugly and she does that by shaving her head and i believe she cuts her nails also am i remembering that correctly that literally just popped into my head it's this thing of she grows her nails long she grows her nails long thank you but the idea is right but she makes herself not look attractive and i think it's honing in on sort of two pieces of physical beauty that women you know are sort of associated we don't often think of like a man's hair or a man's nail nails those are pieces I think it, of a woman's beauty i think that i agree with you but i think it goes further i think this is about heebie-jeebies i think that there's the there's a recognition that there's a certain amount of male heebie-jeebies when it comes to menstrual women so the moment a woman says like i have my period meaning now he's no longer going to bring those unwanted attentions against her. Now we know that certainly that's not technically true. There are plenty of, you know, abusers who abuse no matter what the time of the month is, right? But but in terms of deterring unwanted attentions, the idea that the snake is a stand-in for an unpleasant prison guard or even just an unpleasant, you know, non-Jew. Again, I'm not saying that all non-Jews are not are unpleasant. This is a very specific scenario of ancient Persia, apparently, right? that again we did not have a chance to touch base with Shai Sekund about this and I really would like to and ask for more insight you know than I could glean from what I was able to read in his book maybe as your Dana said maybe we'll get back to you with more but I think that this is incredibly helpful to recognize that there are times that the Gemara is going to be speaking in code because if it were to speak directly it would be insulting to those who might censor the, Tal- the Talmud otherwise that's never a good idea Right for Jews to write about non their non Jewish neighbors in insulting ways, and and it's a sexually explicit text. So if you're going to write about a sexually explicit act, and now it sounds like perverse and strange and animals what snake what, then it's still an easier conversation to put into the Gemara. I would say than if we were actually talking about the same explicit conversation about human beings, including. You know, let's say we're talking about rape or abuse or whatever. I, I I think that even missing a little bit of the background that I know that Shai must have himself, I would say that this is very helpful in terms of decoding this particular page. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, again, we could spend probably three podcasts just on this particular story. Um, but I think we wanted to just give a little bit of a taste of what an alternative coded decoded reading um, of this story could be. And again, it makes sense. It's in the context of, you know, remedies, talking about health, um, situations a person doesn't want to find themselves in. It just doesn't make sense that they would just sort of randomly come up with this, you know, the interesting case of a snake who desires a woman. It must be right. something else. <laughs> again, and I, again, I will say what I said at the beginning, that that a snake is a symbol of enmity. And if you want to talk about, you know, a anybody who's pursuing a woman in this way in this unwanted kind of way that's it's a reasonable representation that there should be the sign of enmity as that represent as that representative okay i want to go on in the gemara here the next piece of the gemara actually tracks back to our mishnah which is reassuring i think um because that's what we think the gemara is supposed to be doing as opposed to these side turns into you know these odd representative stories so and it says kol ha'ochlin right the, the if you recall the discussion was that anybody can eat anything that's really a food item that even if it's used for curative and medicinal purposes 
But if it's also really a food item, then you can have it as well on Shabbos. You don't have to worry about its other use as something medicinal. You could just focus on the cute, the food side. So what happens? The Gemara goes on to, to discuss exactly this. How far does this go? What does it come to include? It says it includes, now I don't really understand what this means, but it says spleen for healing your teeth. I, I don't know how eating spleen would help eating teeth, but okay. Um, and vetch, right? For healing your intestines, right? Now, the idea here is that I guess it's to keep your body moving, really. And these are these are foods that are not common. That's really the point. These are not common foods. They do have a medicinal purpose, but because they are foods, you're you're welcome to eat them on Shabbat, even if others would be using them for medicinal purposes. And then it goes on. The Mishnah also said all beverages, right? So what does that come to include? How far does this go? So it says like this. It goes so far, your beverages, it's going to be every beverage, even if you take the water in which keepers have soaked, meaning, you know, whatever, whatever remnants are there, and you mix that with vinegar, and then you drink that, meaning this is not a tasty beverage. But perhaps it can actually be good for you. Perhaps it's going to have some, again, some effect on your, I don't know, on keeping your body moving, right? So then Ravina says to Rava, what about this thing of drinking and the, the biblical, ter- the biblical, sorry, the Talmudic term here is meraglayim. What about drinking urine on Shabbat? And Rava says to him, and it's a really, like, I think he answers him up beautifully, right? He gives him a, a strong answer. He says, we learned, right? It's already said in the Mishnah. You can drink any beverage. But people do not drink urine. People do not drink urine. Done. Like he just closes off the conversation. You can't drink it. Not from, it's, there may be a circumstance where you would drink it for medical purposes. Again, Yardina, let's turn to your physical, physical knowledge and, and maybe you have an, a solution for when people would actually drink urine. Net, it's never, never a beverage at the table. So you may not drink it on Shabbos, except for presumably in a life-saving kind of, you know, medicinal curative situation. Yeah, I remember the first time I ever saw somebody drink urine. I, there's a old movie from the 1980s called Red Dawn with Patrick Swayze in it. Oh my. I don't even remember much of the movie, but they're thirsty and that's what they do to solve the problem. So yes, I you've you've read of cases where people do that out of but it's an extreme case. And, and I've read about ultra marathoners. I've read about right. ultra marathoners. Yes, doing I think it. ultra like, marathoners do right. But but this is an extreme case. What they're talking about and what the mission is talking about are foods that yes, generally are sort of medicinal, but there are people who will eat it just to eat it regularly. Urine just does not fall under that category, and that's what they're trying to say here. I think that's reassuring. Yeah. So I just wanted to point out one last thing, and I guess I'm sharing this also because it was my little naceness star, which I think I've shared with you guys before um, that I found this week. So as we started prepping yesterday's staff and today's staff, uh, which has, you know, all of these medicinal treatments that the Talmud talks about, um, I came across that there was a book that was actually written by a German doctor in 1911, and his name was Julius uh, Pruss, and he uh, settled in Berlin 
He lived from 1861 to 1913. So I guess this book was published uh, close to when he passed away. Um, and uh, I won't read the title in German. It's been translated into English as book by Dr. Fred Rosner, but it's basically a book of biblical and Talmudic medicine. And essentially what this Dr. Prestid is, uh, he, I, I hope I'm saying his name correctly, but it's, it's P-R-E-U-S-S. Um, he basically goes through all of Tanakh and all of Talmud, and he sort of lists out, but he does it by category, not necessarily by, um, by Masachet, um, but he goes through all different places of illness and different treatments um, and things like that and, and how they appear. Um, and so today, I actually, uh, for those of you who don't know, I actually just collected a bunch of things from my parents' house, from the house I grew up in. And I quickly, before we got to recording, I was cleaning out a box and I found a copy of the book in English um, in Which my father's things. <laughs> um, it totally makes sense that he owned this book. Um, but it was so funny because when I read about the book yesterday, I was like, oh, this looks like a good book to have. And lo and behold, I discovered that I actually now own a copy of the book, which was sitting in my dining room from all of last week. Um, so that was very exciting. So um, so what's cool about this book, and again, I just mentioned it just to sort of wrap up this episode is. So what you would do is, is sort of for like a DAF like this, you would, you know, in the index uh, that's provided in, in the translated one, I don't know if that's in the original German when the index is there, but you basically can look up whatever DAF or, tell, or biblical passage, and then it will tell you what book to, you know, what page uh, to look in. So for example, here, um, you know, the section where it talks about all the remedies for a Zava. And so he puts it in a context here of, you know, that this was probably a list of treatments for a woman who was suffering from chronic intermittent vaginal bleeding, which obviously at that time, remember, they didn't have hormones or things like that that could help regulate that um, and was, you know, would have been a significant problem from a woman who was suffering from that. Um, and that it's clear that many of these treatments, uh, he points out, Dr. Prost, also have like a clear, you know, sort of um, uh, almost like a psychological, he doesn't use the word psychological, I'm paraphrasing her, component to it, because it was sort of like you would do the remedy and then, um, you know, you would yell out, you know, your discharge should stop. That's what the Gemara tells us. And it, and it lists, you know, I think it's over 10 of them or something like that. So anyhow, you know, I it just wanted to point that out. It's a nice resource to have. Um, I sort of just couldn't, you know, hold myself back from sharing that because it was amazing that I found the book. Um, and everything that's mentioned in the on this stuff is basically in this book itself. So it's a great resource if you're more interested uh, in the idea of, you know, some of this Talmudic medicine that we've been spending a couple of days on. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, join us on our Facebook page. Tell us what you think about this really fascinating story or about the herbs or about the medicinal properties of Talmudic pharmacology. Um, uh, what else? Oh, yes. Thank you to Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hodman website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.